0: City Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching a message from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, and the message is called, The Seriousness of Anger in the Church. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. As you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's the word of God. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just a great day so far, full of worship and um, news of the activities that you've called us to, as a church, thank you for your faithfulness to our local body and your your church around the globe. You are certainly a sovereign God, able to provide every need for your people. We know that in your sovereignty, you allow sickness and trial and difficulty, and it is for the refining and the strengthening of faith in your people. God, I pray that we would be fully, wholly surrendered to you, Lord. Each of us are dealing with things right now, some of which would want to distract us from sitting at the feet of your word and just hearing and knowing more about Jesus. So I pray you'd give us clear minds today to think and to study and to be enraptured with the truth of scripture. Uh, Help me to speak clearly and help your people, all of us, Lord, to have ears to hear. I pray that Jesus would be glorified, that the gospel would be clear, Lord, that you'd illuminate um, the hearts and minds of people who need to see the truth today, maybe even for the first time. Lord, awaken souls and strengthen your body. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We pray you'd speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. There's gonna be a lot of, challenging things I think that we hear in the text today Uh, maybe if you've read this passage before you're or even just reading it again being reminded some things might have like the Lord's already like telling me something about my life and I think there's a tendency to want to resist that but don't do that the Lord is so gracious and kind to teach us and to discipline us if there's sin in our lives and the word of God points it out that is a gift a gift from God, and there are plenty of people in this world that are just dodging the truth everywhere they go. They see it, and they dodge it, and you've experienced this, and you've seen it. Let's not be that. We're the church, and so let's be sitting under the teaching of God's word, and so this is good. We're kind of carrying on in our study through Matthew. If you've never been here before, we started in chapter one. We're here in chapter five. This is what we do here. We preach expository messages through the scriptures. We want to hear the whole counsel of God And so that is the best way to do that. We don't pick and choose what we want to be true. We say God's word is true, because it is. We believe sola scriptura here. The scripture is God's final authority given to man, and so we surrender ourselves to it. Jesus, actually in a a pretty clear way, paints that picture with what he's doing in our text. We've already talked about how he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we're going to start to see Jesus actually doing that. What does it look like for Christ to fulfill the law and not to abolish it? He's already explained to the crowd there, a mix of Jews, uh, citizens, and religious leaders, Pharisees probably standing about, but a great crowd is there. And he's already begun to make it clear that he is the authority. He is the king, and a new kingdom has come. And so these specific things that we're going to start to work through one week at a time, today we're talking about anger. The sixth commandment is really what ends up being talked about. And then as we go through, Jesus is establishing that he is the authority. And so we need to pay attention to that. Look at verse, the first verse we cover, look at verse 21 with me again. We're going to just walk through this text. You have heard that it was said to those of old... He begins by talking about what they have heard. I think it's good to say that we shouldn't believe everything that we hear. This was an oral tradition type of community. Things were passed down orally. There were traditions. There were traditions of man. And it's safe to say, based on the context that we're looking at here in Matthew, that Jesus is actually challenging the tradition, the alteration of God's written word in how it has changed through oral tradition and the traditions of the religious leaders. They have taken what is clear and good in the commands of God and they've put their interpretation and spin on it. And Jesus comes into the scene here and he says, you have heard that it was said. And so he's really challenging what they've heard. He's going back to ancient times, ancient scriptures and things that have been said a long time ago but they have been twisted. And so Jesus is... He is challenging that. But I want to just say, you know, for all of us, that's important, that just because it's something that we have heard doesn't mean it's true. Something that's been heard by a very smart, wise person. You might be uh, friends with or have relationship or knowledge of somebody who's just a great spiritual leader. But if it's not Christ and his word, then it does not bear the authority. And so we need to be careful. The importance of hearing God's intended meaning in his word is so crucial that what he has intended by his word, and Jesus is gonna get to the bottom of that. How should one come to the truest meaning of the word? How do we come to that? Well, we examine the life of Christ. Christ is the embodiment of all that God is and desires. So the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, though they had traditions and they had, begun, they had certainly taught an interpretation of the Old Testament law, they did all of that without looking to Christ. And so they missed the essence of what was being said. And so we as New Testament believers with God's word in front of us and in our lives and filling our houses and on our bookshelves, we have every opportunity to look and examine the life of Christ and to know the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. The crowd that Jesus is talking to, they really only knew what the scribes and Pharisees had told them. What a disadvantage. They had only known what and what had happened, and this is why Jesus is often so angry rightfully so angry with the teaching of the Pharisees and the Jews. And why at times he would even physically get angry and show that with flipping tables to see what they were doing and abusing the, was the system of worship that was happening. Why he would speak so strongly against those who lead little, the little ones astray with their false teaching is because what had happened is a A disconnect with the meaning and the essence of what the scriptures are and how they point us to Jesus Christ. So he's here, the the king, the God-man is there. And guess what? He's gonna begin to interpret scripture for us. If we wanna know the right interpretation of scripture, we listen to Jesus. We listen to Christ, and here we have it for us. So here's what it says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So as he begins to talk about this sixth command, he says, you have heard that it was said to, of those of old, you shall not murder. But what he's doing really is he's taking authority over the words of the Jewish teachers, and he's saying, you've heard what they've said, now listen to what I'm telling you. You have heard that it's been said of old, but now I'm telling you this. Jesus is actually saying, they're not the authority, I'm the authority. If that's not a case for sola scriptura or sola Christus, Christ alone, faith alone, scripture alone, that Jesus stands and says, there's been a lot of words spoken through the years. But I say to you, and that's a call to all of us to not listen so much, to all these other voices. And Christ is saying, but I say to you, he is the authority. Can I remind you, he is a good authority. He is the best authority. He is a gracious, loving, redeeming savior. He has much to say against sin, and he has every right to, because he is a holy, awesome, perfect God. For him to not address sin would be the most unloving, ungracious thing. And so here he is calling and correcting, saying, here's what my word says. Now, why should we listen to him? Because he says these words, you have heard from those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment, and he goes on. But why should we listen to Jesus. Well, Jesus is a promised Messiah. Our faith in Christ is not a new faith. It's rooted in Old Testament prophecy and promise. That does something to our understanding of what Christianity is. Christianity wasn't invented during the time of Jesus. The New Testament, the New Covenant, is a continuation, a fulfilling of what had been said for thousands of years already. So we need to look at the scripture that way and see it through that lens. But why should we listen to Jesus? Why should they have listened? So look over with me at Deuteronomy 18. We're gonna just look at a quick text here. Please turn there in your Bibles. We don't have it on the screen. That's on purpose. I want you guys to go over there in your Bibles. Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 18, and we'll just read two verses This is what he says through the prophet, or excuse me, this is what he says through, through Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is an old prophecy saying to the Jewish people that one day a prophet will come like Moses that will speak a final and fulfilling word and you must listen to him. Jesus is that person on the scene taking the very authority, claiming the very authority that had been promised of him. He is that final prophet like Moses that would come and speak a word. And the warning and the promise of God is that you must listen to his voice. As we come into the New Testament, I'm sure a familiar passage with you, just kind of keeping that in mind, this word from God, the, the prophet that would come, the one who was like Moses. Well, look over with me at John chapter one. We're gonna read just two verses there. We're gonna read verse one and then verse 45. But listen to the profound nature of this, of thinking of God speaking and how he speaks. John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word. God's voice was in the beginning. And the word was with God and the word was God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. This is speaking of Jesus very, very clearly. He is the word of God. He is the voice that we must listen to. He is the authority on what, Christ, on what God says and what God requires. Look over at verse 45. I'll start in verse 43, and we'll read through just to get the context. The next day, Jesus was... Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They found him. They had for years been waiting for this Messiah. You guys know this, Christians, you know this. This is what we talk, we talk about this all the time. But just sit under that weight again that this was a thousands of year promise to, to be there in that moment and to say, this is him that was spoken. He is the voice of God. Listen to him. Hear him. All of this really sets us up for the rest of the sermon because what we're saying to ourselves is, is if he is the voice if he is the one who is the authority, even over the greatest authorities of their time, the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, then we should listen to every word he says. I pray that there's a submissive heart to what we hear today as we work our way through the rest of this text. He is the word of God. Let's look at how Jesus responds to the teaching that they heard. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. It says you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder whoever murders will be liable to judgment but i say to you listen to these words everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire so And then he goes on. We'll wait for a moment for that second part. This is not a new teaching. Jesus isn't bringing up something new. He is saying, though, that what you have interpreted about the sixth command, you shall not murder. You have done it injustice. You're too narrow-minded. You're only thinking about the outward act of murder. Jesus said, that's not enough. That's not how I interpret the text. So are we gonna to listen to him? We're gonna to listen to him. Jesus is interpreting the sixth commandment. So if you're wondering, what does it mean when God said, through Moses, on the tablet of stone, you shall not murder? Jesus, the very God-man, is the best Bible teacher, by the way. He's pretty good at interpreting his own scriptures, what he inspired, so we're gonna to listen to him. He's saying, it's not just, thou shalt not murder. But if you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. So his interpretation is best. Now, there's some, a variety of ways that this is viewed. Some manuscripts, and you might even have it in your Bible, might even say the words without cause. Everyone who is angry with his brother without cause. Raise your hand if your Bible says that. None? All right. Some older manuscripts or some manuscripts that actually insert that. So there are some translations that say without cause, and they're trying to get to the heart of it because we know that not all anger is bad. There is righteous anger, there is justifiable anger, but there is clearly anger that is sin, and Jesus is calling that out. And so much so that there is anger that is considered along those lines, so much so that it is a breach of the sixth commandment. What comparison does anger have with murder? I think we might be asking that. It's a pretty natural question. What comparison? How could Jesus possibly be saying that if you're angry with your brother, it's a breach of the command to not murder? It's a good question that we should all be, I think, honestly, we should be asking. One seems pretty minor in comparison, right? But the breaking of the command according to what Christ is saying is not only in the act, but what he's saying is it's also in the thought. It's where it begins. It's the motivation of the heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, our hearts are evil. Even with the great um, and amazing influence of Christ indwelling us through his spirit, even Christians deal with a daily crucifying of the flesh, you have to ask yourself, why did I just think that thought toward my spouse or my kid or that person walking next to me on the street, how could such an evil thought enter my mind? So even as Christians, if a Christian person still deals with that, what is the, what is the state of an unregenerate soul and a heart who has not been regenerated by Christ and influenced now by the Holy Spirit? It just shows us the depths of what sin has done to to corrupt humanity and how deep it goes in each of our hearts and how we need Christ, how we need his influence. We need his spirit. We need salvation. And many of us have it. We have salvation in this room through the grace of God. But let's humble ourselves. Christians, humble yourselves. And let's look at this head on. Are we dealing with anger issues that would breach the sixth commandment? Jesus, again, is the right interpretation of this. This can be clear to say that there is a thought that can enter the mind that is full of anger that breaches the sixth commandment. This is clear without saying that anger is just as gross as physical murder. I think that needs to be said. Jesus is not confusing the issue here. He's not saying, hey, it's just as bad and the consequences are just as far if you're angry with someone as if you were to murder them. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that to break that command is to breach the entire law, and you are equally as guilty. So you're not off the hook. If you're an angry man who never murders, but it's always in your heart, you're guilty of the command. That's that's essentially what is being said here. If I can say it this way, thought life matters to God. Your thought life matters to God. I think we could at least deduce that from this text. What you think about people around you, what you think towards brothers and sisters in this very room, people you fellowship with and eat with and go to city group with or are called to serve and, and submit to, according to scripture, how you think about those people matters to God. I think I just said this last night to my daughter. God sees what you do. <laughs> he sees it. You know, you have to say that to little kids because they think if they can get away with things because you're not around. And so you teach them, like, God sees everything. Well, you know how far God sees? He sees your thoughts. Isn't that humbling and a little bit scary, a little frightening, all of the above? He sees every thought. He sees the thoughts you're thinking right now. He sees ignorance. He sees apathy. He sees hatred. He sees bitterness. He sees it. We can't hide it. This is the reality of the God that we serve. Thought life matters to God. Now, the teachers of the law, what they did was, with this command is they narrowed its scope. When they taught the law, they simply said to those who were listening, just don't take someone's life. Don't murder them. And Jesus comes in, he says, it's actually bigger than that. The way you treat human beings, image bearers of God, goes from the thought life to the words that you say to them, all the way to the final result of what some do end up doing is actually committing murder. Taking a life without cause. Unjustifiable. They narrowed it down, while in reality, the scope of it is is very broad. And so he goes on to say a little bit what this looks like. How How does he broaden it out? I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, so now he's talking about insults, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. It seems pretty serious even to just speak words that are harsh to others. Now, what, what's actually happening here is it goes from anger to insults and to scorn. These two words, one is to attack the character of the person, the other was is to attack the intelligence of the person. One is speaking of moral failure, the fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You are morally a fool. If you say that, that's what was being done here. If you called somebody a fool, ultimately you were attacking their moral integrity. The insults were about their intelligence, more than their moral character. Either way, Jesus is bringing out two common things that were said in this time. I think we could probably fill in some things in our culture that would be equally as offensive, degrading to the human being. Anger, insults, contempt for intelligence and for somebody's character. All of them are sinful, but he does seem to be saying that there's a little bit of a degree here, doesn't he? One, he says, at first glance, the final one, he says, this is worthy of hellfire, while the others were worthy of counsel and worthy of judgment. He's using present-day reality that you, you commit these sins, you do these things, you're worthy of going before the human court. But I think what Christ is actually doing is he's using these modern-day realities to paint a spiritual, spiritual picture. The same thing that he does in our next week's sermon where he talks about lust and he says if you lust you're better off to cut your arm off why because you're better off to go into heaven with one arm than where hell with two he, he's bringing up the the context of all of this is Jesus is painting a picture of how serious it is that we live our lives here for him in holiness and take his law and his word seriously because what's a reality eternity because eternity is a reality. Because hell is a reality. And so that should affect how we live and how we respond to God's word. Interestingly enough, there were three types of capital punishment during this time. Each of them in their own severity, but they were all capital punishment. There was, there was stoning. Um, there was beheading. Beheading would have been the quickest thing, like less severe. Stoning, a little bit more serious. Right? And then the final, there was, um, I mean, what would be worse than being burned alive? And so there is a picture being painted here that there's a severity to us living our lives carelessly and how we treat other people. Ultimately, it's about how we treat God, how we live our lives before him. So if we were to sort of break this into two sections, section one, Jesus sort of sets this up to talk about what is the interpretation of the law? How should we view the command, thou shalt not murder? So if we were to say, what is this section about? Number one, anger is far more serious than we often think. I think we could just cling to that a little bit. Anger is far more serious than we often think. So let the Lord deal with your heart on that people you've been angry with, maybe somebody you're angry with even now. And number two, sin is committed in the heart before it ever comes to action. Sin happens in the heart before it ever comes to action. So if we are just saying, well, I've never done this, then we're missing the whole essence of what the commands are for. And Jesus' interpretation is pretty clear here. That to even think in a way that is hateful without cause towards your brother or towards your sister is to be guilty of even hellfire. Now look at the second part, beginning in verse 23. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come to offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. As we shift into the second part, and I think there's a clear shift here, Jesus begins now to not so much talk about the interpretation of the text, but then how much it affects our life and our worship how we live and exist with one another, even as we are living out our lives as worshipers of God, this command affects all of that. So I think one thing we could say is that the commands of Christ are thorough. They're not just a list of do's and don'ts, but they're intended to change the heart. It's a standard of holiness. It affects every area of our lives. And another thing, and this is really getting to the crux of what the application is going to be, notice that in the context, the worship of God is not removed from the context of Christian community. To say, I worship God, is not to be removed from, I worship God with my brothers and sisters. I worship God as part of a body, it's meant to be seen and thought of in community. And we can see that, by the way, Jesus says, when you go to offer your gift, you should be thinking about your brother. When you come to worship God, you don't do so as if you're the only one who exists. That you're the only one that God loves. But you do so with a mindset so much, with intentionality so much that you're even thinking about your brothers and sisters. That seems to be clear in the text. Another thing that we can see is that worship is not just emotional. See the intentionality of what's happening here in the text? Look what he says if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. So what's the context of this? This is when a Jewish person would go in with their chosen sacrifice and their wait for the priest to come and and take that offering to then go into the place of the altar and sacrifice that animal that has been brought. And what would that bring? Uh, Assurance of forgiveness, atonement, this remembrance of God's promises of the Old Testament, his presence amongst Israel, this was an important moment. This was worship. This was representing relationship and reconciliation and covering of sins. And he says, in that moment, if you're there about to worship God with your gift, and then you remember something. It's not just emotional. You ever thought about that? How today in our world, worship is really just an emotion? It's not very thoughtful, it's not intentional, it's not rooted in anything. Worship is more like just a feeling. But you can tell here, that they're getting ready to offer a gift. I can't think of anything more worshipful than a lamb getting ready to die. Anything more serious, and it was what God had commanded. And there, while you're there, if you remember that your brother, notice what it says. Not if you remember that you hate your brother. Not if you remember that you have somebody that you've got a bone to pick. But if you're there at the altar and you remember that somebody has accused you of something and you are guilty, don't offer the gift. What does that take? A lot of humility and honesty and intentionality in our worship. How often do we come and we lift our hands and worship while we know we have been accused, sometimes even rightly, we've done wrong things to people. And we just say, well, so glad I can just worship you, God, because you understand me. Can you read that text and say that God is actually going to just not care about the things that you have done to other people? Even in your thoughts? This is talking about real intentionality, real worship. Worship that acknowledges the other people in your life and that God is a God of reconciling grace. A God of redemption, a God of renewal, so that as we are right with him, what are we, we we actually seek to live right with other people. And we don't pretend that one exists without the other. I think the church is often guilty of that very thing. So the worship of God is intended to be in community with an acknowledging that we have brothers and sisters. It's not just an emotional thing. Worship of God doesn't justify mistreatment of a brother or sister in Christ. And what I mean by that is, if a person were to go to that place of the altar, acknowledge that, yeah, I've got something going on with a brother, but I'm going to just worship God anyway, because he's worthy. That is not the heart of Christ. Jesus' command would say, leave your gift at the altar. He's telling us what is more important and what actually is a true heart of worship. Now, if we were to bring that into New Testament or our current context, we don't offer gifts at altars. We don't bring lambs to church. Don't try that next week. There are other things that we can see. We could say, what would be the most important place of worship in the life of a Christian today in the New Testament church? And I think that it can easily be said that the comparison is the table of communion. The Lord's Supper The supper that signifies the death of Christ where the Lamb of God was slain for us. A supper that signifies his shed blood and his body that reconciles us to him and to one another. And this is why we emphasize so often the importance of examining your heart before you take communion. And I pray that it is not taken lightly. Remember how I said you have to tell people at times, God sees you. You say that to your little five-year-old, three-year-old, 10-year-old, sometimes 20-year-olds, God sees what you're doing. Don't go to the communion table full of anger or with a sin that you've committed against somebody that you're guilty of and pretend like your worship is more pleasing to God than if you were to go and reconcile with that person. That is clearly what Jesus is saying in this text and if we are to rightly interpret how God sees anger he sees it as a very serious offense we need to listen to this church whatever the Lord is speaking to us may it be clear and may we respond in repentance today now What's happening here is you can almost see that in the beginning we're we're seeing our relationship with God and now we're looking at our relationship with people. We know that the two tablets of the law, the two stones of the law, we're representing our vertical relationship with God and secondly, our horizontal relationship with man. Christ is just doing an awesome thing here as he's laying out the, the meaning of the sixth command, that it affects both our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. But this is not an excuse to disfellowship oftentimes when there is struggle or hardship amongst people, amongst brothers and sisters, there, there sometimes is a removal. Well, I'm just not going to deal with the person, so I'm not going to go to church anymore because there's, there's bitterness or there's anger or there's accusation. That's not the way that Christ has commanded. He actually says, go deal with it and then come back and worship excuse here for disfellowshipping and saying well well, because I've got a problem with this brother or sister in Christ I'm just not going to come around anymore I think we need to press into maybe the, the need for humility in our own hearts or the need for patience but notice what he says look at some of the language here and how adamant he is about how we deal with this Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First of all, that would be inconvenient, wouldn't it? Where are you going to go? Well, the altar's here, and what if the person's not here? Well, you got to go. It, what does it say? you got to put work into it. It might be inconvenient. It might mean you have to inconvenience yourself a little bit to deal with the relationship and make reconciliation. But he says, go. First, this is obviously the first importance First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Notice that the order of things. You're the accused in this situation. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. This is an examination of the heart to say, I have actually done wrong. I'm the one who is wrong. They've accused me, and they're right. So go deal with it. So come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. So I think what can be safely said is that we are to labor for reconciliation in the church. To labor for it. Put the work in. Humble yourself. Look to Christ and his great reconciling love. If you're having an issue with, with dealing with that, then just all you have to do is glance for a moment and remember the great amount of sin that we were forgiven of. Labor for reconciliation. Reconciliation is a jewel Of the gospel. If you think about it, what does the gospel preach? It preaches the reconciliation of relationships that are at odds. God can reconcile any relationship here on earth, any single one. And I know a lot of you have stories, you have testimonies of that. Maybe some of you are on this side of that and you wish that were true and you're having a hard time seeing that it could be possible. It is possible. And it is absolutely necessary that every Christian that names the name of Christ labors as hard as you can for this reconciliation that we we are commanded to live out. So labor for not just reconciliation, but notice what he says quickly. And how often do we just delay? Years and years of ache and turmoil, and sometimes it's not your fault. I acknowledge that. Sometimes it's not you that's on the accusing end. You know that you have been wronged. And you wish and you wish that other person. But you know what? You can forgive. That's what that person would be called to do. You know there's other places in scripture where God challenges that. He doesn't just challenge the one who's accused, but he also challenges the one who needs to to forgive. If you do not forgive on earth, how will your heavenly father forgive you? So either way, whether you're on the side that needs to forgive or you're on the side that's accused and needs to be, for, you, you need them to reconcile with you. Either way, we have God's word that's just saying, here's, here's my standard and here's, what I, here's how I want you to live because it is an accurate representation of the gospel. Labor for quick reconciliation. But I would say especially if you're in the wrong I fear that there are so many, many people in the church, the capital C church, that live years and years and years, having been accused of a wrong and never freeing that person whom you have wronged by going to them and simply saying, I was wrong." So where do these things need to happen? I'll just name a few scenarios and and, and maybe the Holy Spirit will remind you of something today. Seek quick reconciliation with brothers and sisters in Christ. How important is that in the local church? For us to be a church of unity, that loves unity, that strives and is eager for the unity that Christ has given us, then that would be with brothers and sisters. So deal with that. Whatever that looks like. And maybe with spouses, You've been accused, and you're wrong. We hate admitting it, I know. It's like, no, 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 I'm right. The Lord knows, he sees everything. And I can tell you there have been personal stories in my life where it took aching hours for the Lord to break through the stupidity and pride in my heart before I actually said, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. It hurts. What does that tell you? We are sinful, hard-hearted, hard-headed people. But God is so gracious. He's so gracious. I'm thankful for those moments that I've been able to grow through. And many of you have too. But if you're not growing because you're holding on to it and you never admit that you're wrong and there's always just a, uh, you ever seen those kind of relationships? You ever been in those relationships where it's just boom, boom, boom? There's no unity Just humble yourself. Where you're wrong, admit it. Where you're not, pray, pray, pray for the grace. Cling to Jesus. You have no greater need than to be clinging to His word that will give you the patience through the trial that you're going through. Because sometimes there are years and years and years ahead of you. I wish it weren't the case, but that's often the case where it takes years for these relationships to be healed. What about with children, parents that don't want to admit that we're wrong, or children that don't want to admit that they're wrong? I'm just going to look at the youth group. Group, you guys conveniently sit in the front row, so I can just go boom. You guys, and then the rest of you too. <laughs> but we all need it. Think about those relationships. Maybe there, maybe there was something that went on this week where you, you just know I was wrong, and I, I fought tooth and nail, like I was the right one. It's not, not Christ-like. and then ultimately with our relationship with God. That's what matters most. Thankfully, we have the gospel that paints this beautiful picture that we were once the accused. And guess what? We were all guilty. Every single one of us, rightly and rightfully accused and judged and condemned living in condemnation from God, justly so because we sinned against him Our natural man was sinful. And then not only just the natural man, but the willfulness of our choices to sin against God and rebel against him. And the paths that we go down that are rebellious and evil. And who does Christ Jesus die for? The scriptures tell us that Jesus died for his enemies. That's where our thoughts need to go. When we have a hard time, think about what we have been freed from. And that is the picture of the gospel. And it's very, very serious, clearly, because look at how he paints the picture. He says, come to, ter- come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and-, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And I don't think what he's trying to say here is eventually you'll get that last penny. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's gonna be so bad, you're never getting out. Don't let it come to that point. And the impossibility that it seems for God to save sinners like us and free those who are guilty of sin from hell and fire and the judgment of God, Christ Jesus became the accused. He was accused wrongfully and then yet hung and died on the cross, taking the wrath of God, was punished for us to free us from that accusation. Now we have a different accuser. Who's the accuser now? For the church, the accuser of the brethren is Satan. And he does seek night and day to accuse us. But brothers and sisters, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And you have every right and every truth that has been given you to say, I'm no longer guilty. I don't stand as guilty before God anymore. I am guiltless. I've been justified. And that grace is the motivation for us to live here rightly with our brothers and sisters, with our spouses, with our kids. It's the gospel in view, it's the work of Jesus, it's the the merits of Christ that have been given to us that should humble us and make us pliable and willing to say, I'm sorry. So let's deal with this. Whatever the thing is that needs to be dealt with in your heart, Whatever thing you need to deal with with your spouse or your kids or somebody, we're gonna take communion in a moment and Eric's gonna walk us through that. We're gonna hear the same words. Examine your heart. Take this seriously. And I'm not saying I hope that nobody goes back there. (laughs) That would be profound, wouldn't it? But just deal with it. If that is the ultimate picture of worship on earth, the communion table then it is in that moment every week that we have the opportunity to live out the love of the gospel and the heart change and the, the reconciliation that Christ has given to us. And don't pretend that your worship of God is more important to God than your relationship with people on earth and your right relationship, especially with the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We need your Holy Spirit, not to just apply this truth to our heart, but Lord, to humble us so that we're not seeking to justify sin right now. I pray that any attempt to justify what we have done or what we are doing, that you'd point a finger at it graciously but firmly. And Lord, that there would be the processes begun of relationships being healed. Some of them old, long term hurt. Some of them not the fault of the person in this room. Lord, may you give that person the freedom to forgive, truly forgive, to let it go. Yes, it happened. It's real, it hurts. But Lord, by your strength and by your power, Lord, give those who need to forgive somebody right now in their heart the kind of forgiveness that is truly representative of the gospel. That our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. There's true freedom. So I pray you grant that freedom to people today. Lord, if there's those in this room that are accused and rightly so and they have, are guilty and they have done something to somebody, a brother or sister, please, Holy Spirit, influence that person's heart, all of us, Lord, to be better at this, to look to Christ, to humble ourselves before your mighty hand. And to be able to admit our wrongs. I pray you'd heal and restore many, many relationships. Lord, help us to be quick with reconciliation. Help us to be intentional about it. So that our worship of you can be genuine and pleasing to you. That we would never seek to approach the altar with a table of communion or lift our voices to you, pretending like we are right with you. I thank you that you are merciful, that you are long-suffering, that there is much grace extended to your people. You are a gracious and loving, Father. But Lord, I pray that you would do the work in this church now and heal. And thank you so much, God, for your saving grace. Would you save, Lord, save souls in our midst? Bring salvation and redemption and forgiveness of sins, Lord, that somebody would just in their heart of hearts cry out to you and say, save me, I'm a sinner, I am guilty, I have wronged you. Thank you for Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, thank you for atoning for my sins. Thank you for your suffering in my place. And so we pray for all Types of situations this morning, that you would get the glory in the healing, in the reconciliation and restoration, and the forgiveness of sins. God, you be glorified. Help us to live this out in obedience now. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the New City Church Podcast. For more content from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at www.bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next episode.